you brought your Bible, would you open up to Psalm 63? You can find it. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, especially this morning. It's uh, some stuff we really want to dive into. 479 is where it is in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars shall be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like you to imagine for a moment there's a company that has recently decided to do some downsizing by eliminating a number of their employees. Well, first on the chopping block are a group of accountants, a couple of accountants who are remarkably similar. Uh, both of them went to similar universities. Both of them have the same amount of experience. Uh, they both have families that they love and count on them for their livelihood. However, upon hearing the news of their termination, two very different paths are taken. The first employee experiences a predictable wave of dread and fear. He goes home and informs his family of the bad news that they're going to have to tighten up a little bit before he secures other work. But after the week goes on or so, he starts to engage his networks and search for work. And soon, after a month or so of searching, he begins to secure similar work so he can begin to right his financial ship. But the second employee, he feels the same dread and fear that the first one did. Instead, when he gets home, though, he screams at his family, tells them to leave him alone. He isolates himself. He cuts off his relationships to others because he's so embarrassed. Pretty soon, he starts to self-medicate, starts to drink way too much. His family doesn't really understand why he's behaving so erratically. But it's only after he gets pulled over for a DUI that he begins to process and try to put the pieces back together again. Now here's my little thought experiment this morning. Why the two reactions? If you were examining the two, you would say, you know, the difference between them is almost nothing except for the way they dealt with it. You have identical circumstances. One of them weathers disappointment and the fa with, failure, with poise and resolve, while the other sort of spirals out into insecurity and self-destruction. Why the difference? Well, the Bible actually has an answer to that question. And I would argue, in the Christian view of the world, it presents a unique way of looking at human beings that we need to consider this morning. And it's simply this idea. Humans are unique from the animals in that we possess something that the Bible calls a soul. That is, there is an inward part of what you call you that is absolutely central to the quality of your existence. This inner world dictates all that you decide, all that you think, all that you feel. It guides you. 
it thrills you, it depresses you, it sets you onto paths that either lead you to flourishing or ruination. And yet we live in a world that really doesn't talk about the soul in the way in which the Bible talks about the soul. Granted, we're very adept in our day of trying to tell the world that the world must bend its views of my inward impressions about myself to whatever I come up with. The world needs to respect my feelings, regardless of how subjective they might be. But again, the Bible simply doesn't talk about the soul this way. And you can see if you take the example of King David, our subject for this semester. I mean, how do you account for this man's life, really? He's capable of amazing acts of bravery when he faces the giant Goliath. He lives in confidence even when the king of the land is out trying to take his life. He fails spectacularly but still maintains his faith in God's provision. He even comes dangerously close to losing his entire kingdom, but he still knows how to right the ship of his own inner world. Well, as we come to the end of this semester, I'm finally ready to answer the question that we've been teasing all spring about what it was that made King David tick. And my premise this morning is simply that David navigated both the successes and the failures of his life the way in which he did because of the condition of his soul. And in numerous places in which he, which he talked about his soul, uh, we find it in the Psalms all over, but especially here in Psalm 63, we see this window, as it were, into David's inner world that I think not only can help us understand our own souls better, but also help us understand what it was that David knew as God's king that really set him apart. Those are my only two points this morning. We want to understand the soul, first of all, and secondly, we want to look at what it means to have our souls satisfied. Understanding, first of all. Look, I'm afraid for some of you, you're tuning out at this point because, oh, the soul, lest we all know what the soul is, that's obvious. But for the sake of having some fresh eyes this morning, let's, I want to take a look at the most basic questions surrounding your soul. What is it exactly? How does it work? What does it have to do with what I call me? And my premise is that only when you really understand the nature and workings of your soul can you ever give it the attention that it needs to flourish. So let's just start with the psalm itself. You've got it open there before us for you. How does this psalm describe the capacities of your soul? Notice, number one. First of all, we find out that the soul thirsts in verse one. David says his soul reminds him of being parched and needing a drink. Secondly, in verse two, we find that his soul looks, right? There was a time in the sanctuary where his soul saw God in his power and glory. What in the world does that mean? Thirdly, we find that it's satisfied, like with rich food in verse five. Again, David is appealing to these natural senses of his hunger and his taste. Verse 6 says that it remembers, right? There's a capacity that David's soul has to reflect upon itself, which means in verse 6 also that it meditates on it. His soul is a thinking creation. There's rationality involved. Finally, in verse 8, it says that it clings, which is super weird. <laughs> what can it mean that my inner world is clinging to something? Okay, hold that thought. But here's what I want you to grasp. According to Psalm 63 and other places all throughout the Bible, the inward parts of you, your soul, is of a nature that it consumes. That's the idea. 
Your inner man ingests, it imbibes, it grazes, it feeds upon. The inner part of you is an absorbing, consuming mechanism. So your inner nature, whatever else we can say about it, has from the very beginning of what you were knew about yourself when you knew you were aware of who you were, has been taking things in. That's what the soul does. That's its primary function, is to draw into itself. Which brings me to a second thought. Because I want you to notice how tightly connected, though, at least in David's mind, is his inner world to his outer world, his physical self. Go back to verse 1. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. There's the two aspects of his self. He is a soul and he is flesh. But they work very much in conjunction with one another. Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied, my lips will praise. You see, throughout David's poem, he's linking what happens in his inside with his responses on his outside. That is, the invisible is directing the visible. There's a priority there. Now look, that brings up a small little interesting side question that I like to harp on whenever I get the opportunity. Because whenever I say that the soul is invisible, unfortunately, we oftentimes default to an idea that suggests that the soul is therefore uh, vaporous or or ghost-like. And I mean simply, though, when I say that the soul is invisible, I don't mean that. (laughs) That is not what the Bible suggests, that that your soul is not substantive. Um, most of the times we talk to people who uh, have this question about what it is, my, what, what is going to happen to my soul when I die. But understand something, that we have a certain view of the world for those who follow the Bible. And that view of the world basically says there's an entire other realm. It's crazy, I know, especially for those of you looking from the outside into Christianity. There's an entire other realm that exists that is invisible to us coextensive with our world, and we refer to that as heaven. It's not way up there, right? It's all around us. It is God's space. God's there. The angels are there. The souls of the dearly parted are there. But just because that realm is invisible to us doesn't mean that those who are there now don't recognize each other. It's a favorite question. People ask this question like, well, when we get to heaven, are are we going to recognize each other? What's the assumption? The assumption is the invisibility, the, I don't know, the the ghost-like quality of us continues. No, it doesn't. The reason why we can't see that world is because of our blindness, the Bible says. We're being shielded from being able to see that realm, but it's all around us. My assumption is that at our deaths, our blindness drops and we begin to see this other world and we begin to face whatever there is to face there. Which brings me to the last point, and probably most important for what we're talking about today. David is saying that his soul is the thing that takes priority over his life. In other words, what is true there, what is true in his inner parts, is almost more true, if I can use that silly phrase, than what comes out of me. I mean, just think about how often in this psalm, and throughout the rest of the book of Psalms, the writers are employing the language of the senses. Did you notice this? He says we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can see him in the sanctuary. We can feel his presence. We can hear his voice. Those are five physical senses, right? But the question comes, how do I have those things when we're talking about something that's invisible? 
Well, the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards actually worked through this exact very question when he was thinking about genuine Christian spiritual experience. And he came to a conclusion. He said, yes, human beings all have five physical senses. And when we use those senses, they allow us to apprehend the world around them. When they're in use, we can say, I'm experiencing the world. But in the Psalms, there's something different that's going on. Because these people are talking as if they are actually apprehending and experiencing God. Things that go on in the heavenly place. Edwards goes so much as to call it a spiritual sense. A new sense. A sense that is something that is only granted by the Holy Spirit of God to see, taste, smell, feel things that otherwise are invisible to us. But here's the crazy thing. When people start to describe what that spiritual sense is like, they use the language of our physical senses, which is fascinating. In other words, what you have here is when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, they grant them the ability to take what it is that they are seeing with their eyes and ears and nose and hands and to translate that into spiritual sustenance. That is, they gain the ability to see, hear, and touch invisible things through this new sense. I heard one pastor put it this way. He goes, look, if you think about it, every sense that you have is irreducible. Is it not? For instance, my eyes and my ears, they do totally different things. But because they work so closely together in my experience, I don't always realize this. Well, imagine that you're having to deal, for instance, with someone who was born blind. And your task for that person born blind is to explain to them the difference between orange and blue. How are you going to do that? Exactly. I mean, they can't hear the difference. They can't feel the difference. They can't smell the difference. The point being that the reason the Bible uses physical sensory language to talk about an experience of God is that this new sense of God that you get when the Holy Spirit opens up your soul is as different from the way you related to God before as it is the ability to see and hear are different. Something completely new happens when the soul gets woken up in that way. When we are given a spiritual sense and what comes out of our mouths is like what we experience in our physical world. What does this mean? Well, among a lot of other things, it means that the maintenance and attention that you give to your soul is the most important task that any human can undertake. Why? Because your soul is going to orient all of the life that you are taking in using your five senses. Your soul is the one processing all of that. So much so, it's going to make sense of it and actually make almost more real what you take in with your senses. This is fascinating. <laughs> the power of your soul is to guide everything else that you experience or that comes out of you. I read one commentator put it this way. He says, look, when you get a, a spiritual sense of God's grace in your heart, it, over time it becomes more real than your guilt. Right? He says, when you get a spiritual sense of God's holiness in the heart, over time, it becomes more real to you than your impulses. 
What goes on when you get a spiritual sense is that it actually changes you. It changes the way you are. The truth ceases to be something abstract and it becomes substantial. It has heft. It has solidity. Take a negative example. Let's imagine that you go to a doctor and you explain your situation. He he diagnoses you with um, uh, diabetes, uh, diabetes, right? And he explains to you as rationally as he can the dangers surrounding your future relationship with sugar. You walk out of his office convinced what he said was true. But then you get home and you find that your spouse has betrayed you by bringing into your presence your favorite donut. Of course, it's a chocolate sprinkled donut because it's the best kind of donut. Suddenly in that moment, something changes. You smell the donut. It's terrific. You see it. It looks wonderful. All of your senses get engaged in your desire to devour it. But don't you see that in that moment, the donut is threatening to become more real to you than the knowledge that you have of your doctor's diagnosis. Does that make sense? This is what the soul does for us because it makes real the things that we only knew conceptually by our rationality. It makes it vivid. It makes things come alive. We say we we see things, we heard things, we experience things. How did that happen? Because the Holy Spirit came in with a spiritual sense of impressing himself upon you. What's the point? The point is this, every single human being in this room right now has an inner part. And that inner part of you is a natural consumer. It seeks, it finds, it eats, it thirsts, it hurts, it longs, it rests, it frets, everything else. But when God gets hold of that part of you, when all of a sudden the spirit begins to move its way in, And you begin to experience a longing. I was listening to a podcast this week of someone who had gotten, who converted to Christianity. She's a a history professor at the University of North Carolina. And she said, you know, during all of my years of atheism, no one ever adequately explained to me where my longing came from. Like I knew there was something wrong. That's the soul. That's the unsatisfied soul crying out. But when the Holy Spirit moves in, what happens is people begin to express it. But the only language they have is the language of the physical senses. That's why people struggle to say, what do you mean God met you? What do you mean he met you? And you're like, I don't know. I was thirsty and now I'm okay. I was hungry and he fed me. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know. That's the spiritual sense. That's your soul. And even though it's hard to explain to other people, you know it. You know it, as sure as you know anything. The reason why is because suddenly you have a new poise. Suddenly around you have a new humility that you didn't used to have. Yeah, your inner world can get upturned for real, but you always know where home base is. There's a stasis. There's there's an inner keel that keeps you from tipping over. Look, and what happens is you begin to see this very especially when you meet someone who has had that inner part of their soul absolutely satisfied. Which brings me to the last point this morning. Because we're not just talking about understanding our souls. We also need to understand how it's satisfied. And boy, does David give us an example. Because you have to grasp in the psalm exactly what the context of the psalm is before you really get what's happened. The little heading underneath the title of the psalm, 63, says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. All right, let's do some Bible study here for a second. 
When, do Dave, when was David in the wilderness? Well, two times. First, when he was on the run from his predecessor, King Saul. He was in the wilderness. The second time, though, was when he was on the run from his own son who tried to take over his throne, a guy named Absalom. Remember him? Well, which was it? Well, when you get to verse 11, you find David actually says something about himself. He says, but the king shall rejoice in God. Okay, there's the question. When was David both in the wilderness and king? Well, that was only in his time with Absalom. So you remember from a couple of weeks ago? I'm sure you do. When we preached the story of Absalom, and we said that this was the lowest point in David's life. He's almost lost the kingdom. His some of his children are dead. They've murdered each other. His son has overtaken his throne, the one he loves the most. In other words, David's life is in shambles. He's taking shrapnel from all sides. Which makes it amazing that by the time he goes to verse 11, he can say, but the king, the king shall rejoice in God. He can still, in the midst of all that mayhem, say, mm -mm, I'm still the king. Now, how in the world, where did David get that kind of confidence? Look, that assurance of God's promises to David is what I'm talking about. C.H. Spurgeon, the old Baptist preacher, used to say this. He said, there was no desert in David's heart, though there was a desert around him. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Because David was able to manage the emotional devastation of all of this loss with poise and confidence and joy because there was something inside him that was untouchable. You couldn't get to it. His kingship was fading, yes, but his soul was satisfied. His life was on the line, but his soul clung to God. Now look, you're crazy if you say that you aren't jealous of this kind of confidence. <laughs> I mean, don't we all wish that we could be those kinds of people? So there's no way we can do justice to this psalm without asking the question, how did David get here? How do I get what David got? And I would argue that the answer to that is in verse 3. And it ought to sound familiar because we've referred to it in a hint multiple times this semester. Look what he says there. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Look, it's safe to say that David was who he was on the inside because of what he had come to taste with spiritual senses of God's steadfast love. That Hebrew word hesed that we've been talking so much about this semester. That hesed, that loyal love, that strong love, that immu immovable love, the, the unconditional love, the covenant love, the love that we sing about that will not let me go. But this morning I want to ask the question, why would that knowledge galvanize David in that way? Why would it do that? Well, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful little reflection in an essay that he wrote where he was talking about human beings' need for affirmation. If there's anything that your soul is meant to feast upon, it is affirmation. To know that you're doing it right. To know that you are safe. To know that you are loved. The healthiest food that you can get your hands on as a human is affirmation. How do we get it, though? Well, Lewis says there's three ways. Number one, you can affirm yourself, right? You know what? I can do this. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Doggone the people like me, whatever that old joke was. And frankly, self-confidence, self-affirmation, that can be helpful. It's good to have a positive mental attitude. But Lewis says, secondly, you could get that affirmation from someone else. Someone on the outside can look at you and compliment you. And it carries a lot more weight, doesn't it? It didn't come from me. It came from someone else. That feels good. But he said the third way, though, is actually even more powerful than that. 
And that's when you, ready for this, overhear that someone delivered a compliment to someone else about you. Now, all of a sudden, it feels really real. I mean, the first one could be just, could be me just fooling myself. Uh, the second one could just be people being nice. But when they said to somebody else, it moves us more. And Lewis says, why? Because you're inching closer and closer to someone who's not lying. You see, every affirmation that we get is always, we always qualify it, don't we? We receive it and we think to ourselves, yeah, yeah, but we can always find a way through. We can always sort of wiggle through it. But this is what Lewis says. He says, but here's the deal. None of those things can compare to what it's like when we get our first view of the achievement of the gospel. And I'm using my words very carefully. The gospel was God's achievement on your behalf. And that gospel comes with its own structure, its own, its own basement, its own sort of foundational thinking in your life where it's trying to convince you that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, it has constructed for you an immovable center. Why? Because all of it was seeing to your favor before God. So that when one day, at all of our inevitable deaths, we stand before God, Lewis looks and says, before the one who, we, who cannot lie, and we cannot see through his affirmation of us, <laughs> then eternity will be too short to utter all of his praise. That's what David is saying. That in God's persistent pursuit of me, everything I ever wanted in my whole life was looking to this. What I've been striving for and trying to find love was really this. This is what I was hoping to get satisfaction from in my job. It was really for this. All the things that I wanted for my children, that, this was really about this. That's what David's saying. And here's what happens. When people get that thing in their soul, that spiritual sense, they begin to talk about God in super weird ways. Not the least of which is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We're back to Spurgeon, the old London preacher. Spurgeon used to love to preach on like three or four little words. And he was preaching through a book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. Believe it or not, it is a Hebrew erotic love poem. I'm not even making that up. Go check it out. So it's, the, it's the parts of the Bible you, never mind. <clears throat> But he always take, he took one little phrase where a lover, a woman, is looking at her soon-to-be husband and is praising him and looking forward to their wedding night. That's what this is. And in Song of Solomon 5.13, there's this one little line that says, His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. She's talking about his cologne. She, she likes it, <laughs> right? And so Spurgeon seizes upon that one little phrase, and he writes this. He says, come, my soul, put on your holiday attire and go forth to gather garlands of heavenly thoughts. You know where to take yourself because to you these beds of spices are well known. And you have so often smelt the perfume of the sweet flowers that you will at once go to your well-beloved and find all loveliness, all joy only in Jesus. When he is with me, it is the month of May all the year round. And my soul goes forth to wash her happy face in the morning dew of his grace and to solace herself with the singing of the birds of his promises. Listen how he ends this. 
Precious Lord Jesus, let me in very deed know the blessedness which dwells in abiding, unbroken fellowship with you. I am a poor, worthless one whose cheek you have deigned to kiss. Oh, let me kiss you in return with the kisses of my lips. Like, who talks that way? And again, I'm not trying to say that this is your experience necessarily. I think there's probably ultimate classes of people in this room. There's probably a group of people in this room who think to themselves, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I feel restless. Well, you know what? There's an invitation for you to investigate this. Some of you look back and you're like, you know, there was a time, but it's been a while. And I'm dry as a desert right now. And I sure wish I could believe that that was true. Same invitations to you as well to dig this out. There's other of you who know it, and you know it right now. You found out about it this week that somehow, and all you had knew to describe it was with your physical senses, Jesus drew near. And because he did, you've got a sense of urgency to make sure that other people understand and they know they've got a sense of it themselves. Because right here, what we found is we've got the center of the center. I was talking this week with somebody about starting this. This ends my fifth year here. And when the search committee hired me, I told them that I felt like it was a five-year project for all the things that we had to do. And I'm looking forward to seeing what God has for us, Lord willing, in the future. Maybe I'm with you, maybe I'm not. I don't know. We'll have to see where God is taking us as we go. But when it comes down to it, being here was not about a building program. Being here is not about starting new programs and hiring this and doing other showy things. In the end, what this is about, of our fellowship, has to be about this. There are people who have been enlivened and enlightened by the knowledge that Jesus has drawn near. And that my soul has been satisfied like I had a great big giant meal. That is what I have. That's where I want to go. That's where I hope the next 10 years leads us, if the Lord gives us time. This is the center. There's nothing higher than this. Because if our worlds are formed into an inner thing that cannot be touched, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what the next challenges that face our church are. Because God has created that in us. Don't you want that? I do. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you pour it out on us? You said you would do that. We're not even sure, quite frankly, what that means. Some of us are all questions inside. We want to know what it means, but it may just very well be that that longing, that sense of wanting to know, that, that, that persistent sound inside our head that makes us long for something, something with substance, something with truth in it, that's you. That's your Holy Spirit. This is what we've been searching for this whole time. This is what we've been looking for. So would you lead us into it? Maybe in this last song, Lord, as we sing, about satisfaction. You might satisfy us with your love. Would you do that for every person in this room? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.